Bitcoin and Co. The podcast about crypto economy and the future of money. Hosted by author and speaker Anita Posch. Hello and welcome to this episode of my Bitcoin and Co. podcast. I'm happy that you're listening. You can find more details about this episode at www.bitcoincopodcast.com. Please subscribe to the podcast, share it on social media, leave a review on iTunes and recommend it to your friends. Let's start with the episode after this short message from our sponsors. You're looking for a solution to store Bitcoin the safe and easy way? The Card Wallet is a high secure way to storing Bitcoin offline, developed by Confinity and the Austrian State Printing House. The Card Wallet is a professional cold storage solution made with high-quality security materials and tamper-proof features that prevent the manipulation of the card. If you want to know more or buy the Card Wallet, go to www.cardwallet.com. So hello and welcome to this episode of my Bitcoin and Co. podcast. I'm recording this at the Magical Crypto Show in New York. And I have to say it's a great place to meet many of the well-respected members of crypto Twitter in real life. One of these outstanding Bitcoiners is Caitlin Long. And I'm very honored to have her here in my uh, interview now. Hello, Caitlin, and welcome to the show. Hello, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. We've had a great time at this conference so far. Yeah, we had. And thank you for taking the time to do this interview. Caitlin, before we get into the important work you're doing at the moment in Wyoming, I would like you uh, to talk a little while about you and your professional background and how your interest in Bitcoin became uh, alive or how you got interested in Bitcoin. Well, I was working on Wall Street in the heart of New York in investment banking at the time uh, during the financial crisis at Morgan Stanley. And all of a sudden, I was reading the mainstream explanation for what went wrong, and it didn't make sense. There were contradictions. And that's what got me digging deeply, led me ultimately to Austrian School Economics, which ultimately led me to Bitcoin relatively early, not by Bitcoin standards, but by Wall Street standards for sure in 2012. And I kept my interest quiet because it wasn't necessarily something that I thought Wall Street would support. Uh, and eventually, there started to be a lot more Wall Street people involved in it. And then I became, uh, actually got a phone call from the chief technology officer, Morgan Stanley, who asked me to come and help him figure out all these people who were contacting Morgan Stanley, you know, who was, who was worth spending time with and who wasn't. So I spent a lot of time Uh, within Morgan Stanley working on, on this and really understood how the incumbent financial companies were thinking about this technology. So you just said uh, the reason for the financial crisis in 2008 was not what the media, the mainstream said. What was the reason? Ah, well, the financial system doesn't work the way the Keynesians think it works. So what the contradiction was that got me really going was Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner gave an interview to... PBS, which is a big American tech, uh, television station on Charlie Rose's show, very respected journalist at the time. And he said interest rates were too low, and that's why the financial crisis started. And then shortly thereafter, he gave an interview urging the Federal Reserve to lower interest rates still. And so that's what got me going. At the time, I, I like so many people around me on Wall Street, just thought that interest rates were set by the free market 
Oh no, not even close. At the time, I didn't. I just wasn't curious. And I think most people on Wall Street are just not curious. They're they're they they narrowly specialize and they don't swim out of their swim lanes. And there's not an incentive to be curious. Uh, but I was curious and was horrified at what I saw, uh, and made sure thereafter that my business was a fee-based business, so I wasn't using the balance sheet and uh, and stayed there for quite some time. But also, ironically, spent a lot of time not just on the pension business, but also on economics, helping corporate customers understand the alternative view of the world. And nobody, uh, uh, everybody, everybody thought it was so interesting because it made sense. And uh, the, the mainstream view was not making sense. Uh, you were just talking about the Austrian School of Economics. Uh, did you learn that at university already or later? No, it was later. It was. I, I, I didn't go immediately to the Austrian school during the financial crisis. I looked at everything from modern monetary theory, which is the old chartalism um, reborn on the far end, and then at the opposite end was the Austrian school. And I, I realized the Austrian school scholarship, for your listeners who understand what it is, is outdated. Murray Rothbard wrote The Mystery of Banking in in the 1970s when the financial system worked very differently than it is than it works today. There are not a lot of people who've really done work on uh, on Austrian scholarship as applied to how money and credit are created today, which is very different than it was in the 1970s. The markets are so global. Um, there's a gigantic short position in the U.S. dollar that's been created by banks offshore. This is a separate a topic for a separate podcast, but it doesn't. It's not. It's not as simple as it was in the 70s, and I think that's that's why you actually had a lot of Austrians at, after the financial crisis predicting that there would be hyperinflation and a dollar collapse. The dollar collapse hasn't happened yet, but we certainly are seeing an, a hyperinflation in asset values relative to the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar. It's just not shown up in consumer prices yet. You know, I'm from Austria. Ah, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. And, and we don't learn about the Austrian School of Economics, too. I mean, in general, I think people in school, we don't learn anything about how money is created. Yeah. And well, nobody is asking the question because it's in a system. We live in a system and we accept it. Right. But we don't dare to ask questions. That's yeah. sometimes, I think... There's, the the, uh, in the Chamber of Commerce in Vienna, there is a conference room named after Ludwig von Mises. He was an economist at the Chamber of Commerce, and uh, I, there was a Mises Institute event in Vienna um, maybe 10 years ago now already. Have and, been there? Oh, yes. And, and we went and traced his footsteps. It was a, a whole a whole seminar on Ludwig von Mises in his Austrian days. So you have been to Vienna. Would you like to come back again? For oh visit? my, yes! Yeah. It's so beautiful, yeah. so beautiful, and it and it played such a, a historic role. It wasn't just von Mises; it was von um, before him, mm -hmm. uh, and then of course Friedrich Hayek. So there there were so many economists of the Austrian school who created who made real contributions to Austrian scholarship, but their contributions are, are ignored by academia because they don't justify increased government intervention. And so I went back, I, one of the few binders that I saw, that I saved from my university days was the history of economic thought. We did not study the Austrian school at university. It's not taught, even in Austria. That's so interesting yeah, that's to learn, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you said you were like working 22 years on Wall Street. What yes. What were you doing there? I think you were at 
uh, JP Morgan or Morgan Stanley? I don't know. I was actually uh, at started at Solomon, Bro Solomon Brothers, then spent 10 years at Credit Suisse, including a year in Zurich. And ah. then uh, and then Morgan Stanley for eight and a half years, yeah. So you have huge knowledge in the traditional finance yes. system. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah I've, I've, I've seen it up close and personal, some of the operational issues with, with settling financial transactions. It is not as accurate as people think it is. Yeah, I think I've heard you telling the story of the Dole. Dole food, yes. Yeah, that was a class action lawsuit in Delaware, Chancery Court, which is where a lot of business cases are litigated in the United States, and Dole had 36.7 million shares legally issued and outstanding, and there were 49.2 million claims for those 36.7 million shares, and the crazy thing is all 49.2 million of them had valid brokerage statements. So Wall Street's ledgers had, had artificially inflated the number of Dole food shares by about one-third. Wow. Yeah. So actually, the shares were not there. I mean, yes. People believed they have shares, but there was nothing in. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Terrifying. It is, because that is not a zero-sum game. A, there were a lot of people who paid for those shares. Where did the money go? And B, what, me, what the impact of that is, and this is where the money went, is it actually suppressed the stock price. Because there was a natural short position built up in that stock price, There were 133% of shares outstanding relative to the 100% that were legally issued. And so effectively, that's a, that's a short position, what we, what we would call a naked short position in Dole Food shares that suppressed the stock price. So every legitimate shareholder of Dole had their pocket picked by the market. There were people who made money off that. Yeah. So a blockchain solution would be a solution for these kind of things, would it? Absolutely. Yes, but, that's the but, idea. But can you prevent people from uh, giving away more shares on a blockchain too or not? Well, as long as you track, right? It's, it's trust but verify. Uh, one of the great things about the Bitcoin blockchain is it's very expensive to add data to the blockchain. Right? You have to go through the mining process. It costs money. But it's very cheap to verify once the data is there. So the verification process, that asymmetry is, is so important to understanding why Bitcoin is so powerful. At any moment in time, you can look up and verify that your assets haven't moved. But that's also a reason why it's very important to hold your own keys as far as I'm concerned. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. Because that was also like eye-opening for me. In one podcast, you were talking about rehypothecation. Yes. Yeah? And that the danger with Bitcoin is also that um, exchanges give Bitcoin away. Yes. Um, although they don't have it. That's right. So we, we ran, run into the same problem. That's exactly right. Yes, that's exactly right. And that's why as we start to see more and more of the exchange hacks, right? Finance was hacked this past week. Pretty much every exchange now has been hacked. It, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because the, the CEOs, I believe it was CZ at Binance, about six months ago tweeted out, hey folks, you know, the safest thing to do is to keep your coins on the exchange because we know how to manage the keys. And then Jesse Powell from Kraken said, no, the safest thing to do is to keep your coins on the exchange for only as long as you're trading and then take them back off precisely because um, you should be con in control of your own keys. You're the ones who who actually has the best skills to do that. 
it was an interesting debate. And, you know, now looking back on it with hindsight, you know, every one of these exchanges has been hacked. And even if they weren't hacked, it looks like there were some nefarious activities in the Quadriga situation, probably in Mt. Gox as well. If there's no transparency to your third party, you're in no better position than you are against the traditional financial industry. So that's why I really do support Trace's not your keys, not your coins, um, proof of keys on Jan every January 3rd. And, and uh, you know, I think I, the timing is interesting with regard to Quadriga, whether proof of keys had anything to do with, with, with triggering the, the, the final days of that exchange. No one will ever know for sure, but it's not, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting coincidence that Quadriga died not long after proof of keys. It's <laughs> really interesting, yeah. I never thought about that. I found a blog post on your website um, where you are explaining uh, what Bitcoin is. I think it was a speech you did at your old university. Oh, okay. Yeah, and you talk about systemic thinking. Yes. And how important it is in today's world. And you bring the example of the Byzantine's general's problem yes. that uh, Satoshi solved. Yes. And that he or she or they to be like systemic thinkers, thinking more out of the box and yes. not only to be a, a specialist. And then you write, perhaps if the computer scientists had spent more time talking to economists and behavioral scientists all along, it might have been solved a little sooner, yes. a lot sooner. Yes. Yeah, I yeah. think that's really true. And uh, now we come to the point of diversity, because I think uh, in the crypto space, we all also have a little, I say, yeah, a problem. Or maybe we could solve other problems earlier if this space would be more uh, diversified. Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, uh, well, I think that's a very good point. I hadn't made the connection about diversity in the people bringing their skills, but you're absolutely right. The point I was making there was diversity of verticals in the in specialization you know most people specialize this person's a computer scientist that person's an attorney that person's a mathematician that person is a baker right and and you don't actually have much incentive to move out of your so-called swim lane and move across industries it took satoshi nakamoto moving out of computer science, where the computer scientists hadn't solved the Byzantine generals problem for decades. It was considered an unsolvable problem, and Satoshi did it by applying game theory, by applying economic incentives. And it is so such an astute observation that that was a diversity of thinking. I, I, I think whoever Satoshi is or was, or were, um, or are, <laughs> yeah. it, it, Satoshi clearly um, had a diversity of thinking. And, and I think where you're going is a diversity of people in the industry. We definitely have a global diversity. There is a tremendous amount of developer talent all over the world. And I've seen it in the in, when I was at Symbiant, as well as just talking to other companies. Most of the companies in this industry are virtual companies. They have a principal office somewhere, but they also have people all over the world, and it's mostly developers all over the world. Um, we haven't seen, I think where, where you're going also is, as, as we were talking before the podcast began, is just the dearth of women in this industry. That is a problem, I think globally, it's especially a problem in the United States. Women tend to self-select out of, of the science and math fields and um and they and, and there are just fewer women starting at universities in those fields and therefore fewer women graduating 
So I, I don't know what it is. That was part of what I tried to quietly help solve because my dad was an electrical engineering professor. And so he tried to get more women into the field and tried to keep the women that were there. And the, the problem is that it seems to be that women are self-selecting out at the high school levels before they get to university. That's where those, the science and math fields are losing the women. And I wish I knew how to solve that, but I was trying to do my little part. Yeah, I'm trying to do... I think it's yeah. the stereotypes. I think it's the way we teach our children. Because yeah. there it begins. I hope that it's getting better in the next 20 years. But yeah. we'll see. Well, you know, it's interesting. My goddaughter just graduated yesterday with a civil engineering degree from Purdue, which is one of the top universities for engineering in the United States. I'm so proud of her. And when she told me she was going to go with engineering, I started in engineering and, and the math is what got me. I didn't finish in engineering, but she did. And I said, stick with it. And my advice to her when she started, because as a female with a great personality, who's, who's, you know, she's, she can sell and she's also got the, the math and, and engineering skills. She's just going to do very well professionally because I, we, I saw it when I was at Symbian. Symbian tried to recruit women um, and, and went to and, and did recruit very powerful women uh, in the technology field. And the problem is there just aren't as many. And so for startups especially, um, if you have to pay a premium to get a female developer because they're so sought after, the, the, the best ones, um, it's hard for a startup to pay a premium. It's, a, it's it, it truly, truly, women are commanding. I've seen it, um, higher salaries in certain fields of, of technology precisely because there are so few women and everybody wants to try to solve this problem by hiring them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So actually we invite women into this space. Great. Of yeah, course. that's what we're trying to <laughs> yeah, do. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's how the whole Wyoming thing got started. When I was trying to endow the scholarship, it was for female engineers trying to solve the problem of, you know, why it was so hard to recruit engineers at Symbian. I didn't, I didn't do, do the recruiting at Symbian. I just observed it from afar. But I, um, I, I noticed that it was happening at every, every one of the tech companies. They, were, they all wanted to hire female engineers, and, and they just couldn't find them. There, were, there weren't enough. So I thought, well, I'll just quietly you know, try to help solve the problem on the ground in honor of my dad. And then it turned into the whole Wyoming Blockchain Coalition. So, okay. yeah. But why, how did it end up in the Wyoming Blockchain Association? Ah, oh, because um, I, I tried to endow the scholarship for women engineers at the University of Wyoming. And because of Wyoming's bad money transmitter law, they couldn't accept the Bitcoin. Ah, that's the story. Yeah, that's the story, yeah. Yeah. And so I said, I, I'd been on the foundation at the University of Wyoming. And I said, okay, this is a problem. We need to fix this. I'll help you fix this. And then it, it all got started. Because I know I, I would not be the only one trying to donate Bitcoin. Of course, over the years, there will be many. Yeah, sure. Uh, but you lived in New York before because you working on Wall, were yeah. working on Wall Street? I grew up in Wyoming. I spent half my life in Wyoming and half my life in the New York area. Yeah. Okay, now you went back again. for. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I'll, but I'll, I'll be back in New York a lot, too. It's just now I'm, I, I have actually spent probably about half the last two years in Wyoming. Yeah. Okay. And are you self-employed now? I mean, do you, is this your own thing now as Caitlin Long yeah. doing consulting and legal work and stuff? I'm not consulting. I'm not taking any pay for this. It's purely volunteer. Really? Yes. For the last 18 months, it's been purely volunteer. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Satoshi. Oh, okay. And, and I say thank you 
to you because I think your work is outstanding. Really, um, uh, what you did in Wyoming, um, you said it before in your talk, there's actually no taxes on crypto. Yeah. And also uh, lightning. No state no taxes on crypto. No state yeah. taxes. Yeah. Okay. You still have to pay the federal taxes, but yeah. 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 And also lightning notes and stuff are exempt from uh, financial From the money, money transmitter laws. Money yeah. Laws. Yeah. yeah. And there was a third point. Uh, you, you solve the problem when you do crypto business that you might lose your bank account. Well, yes. We, we, we created a new type of bank charter that will be available for application on October 1st. It takes about six months to charter a new bank. So realistically, at best, the doors won't be open until end of March next year. But the whole purpose of these banks is to try to help this industry solve its banking access problems. And when I talk about banking, I mean just basic dollar accounts to pay payroll to employees. Yeah. Um, coming back to the basics of Bitcoin, what is your personal view or your vision for Bitcoin? Why are you into Bitcoin? Oh, it's about financial freedom. It's it's about knowing that the mainstream financial industry is not as solvent as people think it is. That the problems of the financial in crisis were not solved. They were just alleviated for some time, but they they're not solved. They will come back again. And I would rather have an asset that I know is solvent. It's an asset I control. I can own it directly. And I don't have to worry about being a counterparty to a financial institution that might not survive, which is what we are all uh, forced into right now with the banks and brokerage firms that we do business with. How do you think that this knowledge is applicable to the general public? Because I think most people don't know these things. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm not saying that, that this is going to be, you know, that the financial industry is bankrupt tomorrow. I am saying that it's not stable. I think most people just kind of understand that anyway. Um, I just am giving the, the factual reasons why it's not stable and why the auditors aren't catching the solvency problems in the industry because of the way the auditing standards work. And so if you think... Basically, the way I think about it is, what percentage probability during my lifetime will there be a, a true financial collapse? We've come close a couple of times. 1987, there was a bond market collapse in 1994. We had the inner, inner um, net collapse uh, in the you know, 1999 to, to 2001. And then we had the, the great financial crisis. And that's all, you know, since I started on Wall Street, basically. But Potentially, there's. I think it's likely there will be more. And and the question is, if you think there's a big probability that that's going to happen, then then the way I think about it is, I want to own some percentage of my net worth in these assets that I control. I didn't go all in. I'm not like some folks who who put 100% of their net worth in crypto assets because we don't know that there isn't a zero day exploit that hasn't been d discovered yet. Right? There was an inflation bug for 18 months in Bitcoin um, that, that no one found, right? And, and so there's not a, a guarantee that these systems survive, just like there's not a guarantee that the mainstream financial system survives. So I think about it as a probability-based calculation. I don't know what the probabilities are, but I would rather have some per decent percentage of my net worth in an asset that I can own directly and can control rather than be trapped in a financial system where I'm a counterparty to leveraged financial institutions and if they go bankrupt I may not get all my money back. 
understand. Uh, what's your view on things like Facebook coin? Oh, if they do it on a decentralized basis, great, but I can't imagine that they will, so I scoff at it. I like what Square's doing because they're actually working in Bitcoin. And if, if Facebook um, works in Bitcoin, then great. It doesn't look like that's what they're looking to do, though. It looks like they're looking to create some sort of a cryptographic version of, a, of Apple Pay, for example. Yeah. I think so too. I think it's also terrifying how naive people are here because they are like, wow, Facebook coin is coming or like, yeah, Apple Pay. Uh, but they are not thinking about uh, that they exchange their convenience for giving away all those private data, yeah. uh, which Facebook is making loads of money uh, off. Yeah? And yeah. and they, they want to make more and more and more. Yeah. So actually... I hope that privacy coins or Bitcoin uh, will get more privacy features because I think it's very important to have this freedom to pay stuff without being tracked. Yeah, I, I agree. The, the privacy is a, a core value of this industry. It's a core value of Wyoming. And it's in conflict with the U.S. federal government, which wants to be able to track and trace every single financial transaction. Yeah. Every single transaction of value. It's not just in dollars. It's anything of value. So, yeah. Yeah, that's creepy, actually. Uh, have you heard the uh, talk of Alex Gladstein yesterday? He was oh, yes, talking. He yes, was a great talk. Yes, yeah. it was a great. Yeah, it really, and, really and, great. And I was really surprised. I didn't know the thing about uh, WeChat that there's something like debt shaming because you can see if your neighbor has debt or not. Yes. That's yes, really, that's really crazy. Yes, yeah, it is. Yeah, it and is. I think, and I think in Europe or also in the US, they uh, actually they have the same technology, but they might be using it already. I'm not sure. Well, certainly Facebook and Google seem to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. I would like to know um, what do you think of the current situation in the US, for instance. Mm -hmm. How do the big players uh, go along with Bitcoin and crypto and what are they going to do? I mean, I've read that Fidelity will start offering cryptocurrency trading in the coming weeks. Yes. Um, what's, what's the situation at the moment? Can you give a little overview? Yeah, I'm psyched about Fidelity. I've publicly complimented them and how they're thinking about it. And uh, I, th I think that's a net positive to the industry. It is going to be bringing in more interest to the industry Uh, when traditional financial institutions, especially what I would label the sell side, Fidelity is not sell side, they're buy side. They've been on the, on the short end of the stick, so to, so to speak, on all these bad practices like the Dole Food case that, that we were talking about earlier, because it's their clients that are the losers. And so from Fidelity's perspective, I, 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 I tend to trust the buy side firms more than the sell side firms. Um, I, I did do some work when I was at Symbiote with Vanguard. That's all publicly disclosed. I like the buy-side firms better than the sell-side firms because I, they're not as incentivized to play games. The sell-side firms are historically incentivized to play games because they've got away with it for years. And so I, I, I tend to trust the buy-side firms much more than the sell-side firms. And you see you know, J.P. Morgan coming out with J.P. Morgan Coin trying to co-opt uh, some of the activities of stable coins and other um, like UBS settlement coin in using interbank money for settling in central bank dollars. The, this is 
that basically JPM coin is never going to be retail. It's going to be an interbank mm-hmm. coin. Mm-hmm. That is going to be beneficial. There's a lot of inefficiency. And so for JP Morgan to use a cryptographic coin for that, it is going to take cost out. It is going to take counterparty risk out. That's all good. You don't need a blockchain for that. But um, it's because just... it's a private blockchain. It's a private blockchain. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 So, I, but, you know, I mean, I think a lot of folks would love the, you know, the, the approval that, that comes along with the activities of such banks in the cryptographic money area, right? And so you look at JP Morgan coin and say, see, it's actually, it's becoming accepted to be involved in these technologies now. But I think that that's dangerous because these are not true decentralized blockchains. These are private blockchains. They're federated blockchains and somebody controls the on and off ramps to those blockchains and therefore they do have aspects of centralization there 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 are some aspects of decentralization no one really knows what decentralization means i think i know what it means but i'll bet you if we defined it we wouldn't have the same definition so i i'm sure jp morgan thinks their their coin is decentralized <laughs> i wouldn't agree yeah the wyoming laws could they be applied in other countries too i mean like sure. in europe sure. so they are a good example sure absolutely Yeah, taking taxes off crypto yeah. assets. Hey, that's a great idea. That's a great let's do, idea. let's get that's it done true. everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. So, Caitlin, thank you for your time. We're coming to an end now. Thank I have you. a last uh, wish. Maybe you have some uh, book recommendations for our listeners ah. about Bitcoin or the global economics, about Austrian economics oh, or something my. like that. I mean, I guess you have yes. read a lot of books, yes. but... Maybe you know some one or two examples. Yeah, um, certainly for Bitcoin, the Bitcoin Standard by Seyfedean Amos. It, it, Amos it, that, that really is the best book by far. You get a good uh, monetary history lesson as well as a good lesson on Bitcoin. And it's explainable and understandable for mere mortals. It's not written by a technologist for a technologist. If you are a technologist, you will probably be interested in Andreas Antonopoulos's Mastering Bitcoin and Mastering Ethereum. And then there is an Austrian school book where I had an aha moment. And it's a collection of essays. And the essay was written by, well, it's edited by Richard Ebeling. Um, and it's published by the Mises Institute. And it, it explains why interest rates are going down when, when money supply increases. Normally, When money supply increases, you would think that that would increase the risk premium because the country's borrowing more, right? It's, it's inflating when it increases its money supply and, and interest rates in theory should be going up. But this was where I had my aha moment as to why interest rates are going down. Um, and, 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 and that's, it's, a, it's a collection of essays on Austrian monetary theory edited by Richard Ebeling. I would highly recommend that because you can pick and choose from which essays to uh, to read. I will research these titles and put it in the show notes. The Austrian Theory of the Trade Cycle and other essays, uh, and it's edited by Richard Ebeling, and it's the essay by Roger Garrison. So if you read that, it will make you go, aha, about why you're having negative interest rates in Switzerland and Austria. Yeah, that's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, the, but see, again, that also, to me, makes me concerned about keeping my assets in the traditional financial system. Mm -hmm. 
because not, it's not solvent. And, the, and when you take that to the nth degree, you realize that when interest rates are negative, it's not a sign of strength, it's a sign of weakness. And it was reading Roger Garrison's essay in that book that really made me figure that out. Okay, great. Thank you for yeah. your recommendations. And now the last point, where can our listeners uh, read about your work and follow you? I'm pretty active on Twitter and LinkedIn. And then also caitlin-long.com is my website. Also, I write for Forbes.com as well. Okay, I will put that in the show notes too. Good. Thank you very much for your time. It was great talking you. to you nice and interview. keep out the well. good work. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. I appreciate it. This was today's episode. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast in your podcast player, share it with your friends and family on Twitter or Facebook, and leave a review on iTunes or YouTube. If you want to advertise your product or company, please send an email to hello at bitcoincopodcast.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Audio editing and signation spoken by Katrin Eidenhammer. ID and production by Anita Posch.